The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. What's the value of a good night's sleep? For a while, the answer had been $1.1 billion. That was the private market valuation of Casper Sleep, one of the hottest internet retail startups that popularized the now ubiquitous bed in a box. But by the time the company finally decided to go public in early 2020, investors had a different answer. Casper's IPO had all the makings of a very bad dream. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to the Readback from Barron's. This season, we're winding back the clock and unraveling the stories of the companies behind the biggest and most fascinating IPOs to answer a key question. How do we put a price on innovation? Today on the show, Casper thought outside the box when it came to selling mattresses. Why was its IPO such a snooze? Let's go back a decade. If you had to predict the last product to be turned into an internet sensation, what would it be? Maybe kitchen appliances? Maybe swimming pools? I might have chosen mattresses. All of these things were big, bulky, and hugely expensive to ship. But if we've learned anything in the last 10 years, the internet always finds a way. And that's where the story of Casper begins. If you listen to podcasts, you've surely heard of Casper Sleep. The company, which was launched in April 2014, sells beds in a box, which show up at your doorstep and come with a 100-night trial. The box was only one of its innovative ideas, though. Casper was a pioneer in a new kind of internet retail. The so-called direct-to-consumer merchant, which was able to sell products at lower costs, essentially because they could cut out the middleman, the stores. They also found a new way to market themselves, on podcasts. Casper was a pioneer, not just in the way to deliver a mattress, but in the way to, you know, how to get the consumer to think differently about products on the internet. That's Randy Connick an analyst at Jefferies who's been covering Casper since the company went public in 2020. For years, buying mattresses sounded like this. Looking for that ooh, I feel. Come to Mattress Giant when you want that ooh, I deal. We've got the best price. And now it sounded like this. Go home and reinvent the mattress. Eureka. Fit it in a box that ships right to your door. Get so many five-star reviews that you decide to make more mattresses for all sleepers, including your very best friend. Then design a pillow. The company went all in on introducing itself to customers. For the three years leading up to its IPO, Casper spent more than $400 million on marketing. And it seemed to be money well spent. For years, the mattress industry had a bad rap among consumers. The mattress category had stayed listless or the same for a number of decades. And second, the brands within the category had stayed very similar for a number of decades. There was no innovation, if you will. That left mattress retailers vulnerable to the internet, even if the products were huge and costly to ship. If you were one of these legacy mattress makers, you wouldn't have thought, oh, I'm going to get disrupted by an internet company that's going to ship people a mattress in the mail. That seemed like the most ridiculous thing that you could ship in the mail, right? That's Miriam Gottfried, a former colleague of mine at Barron's and now a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Back in 2012, before Casper even existed, Miriam wrote a cover story for Barron's about the explosion in memory foam mattresses and the risks around shares of Tempur-Pedic. 
After years of dominating the memory foam category, Tempur-Pedic was getting more competition. There were a lot of other mattress makers who were realizing, hey, we can make memory foam mattresses too. Tempur-Pedic doesn't have the special recipe. We could charge less than they do because their mattresses were kind of like, I think in the story we called them the Lexus of mattresses. So like affordable luxury. The price range was from 3000 to 7500 generally. So other mattress makers who had been making traditional spring mattresses said, oh, look, we can get into this. We can make a memory foam mattress that costs less than that and steal a little bit of this market share. So it seemed that Tempur-Pedic's stock was going to slow down. And indeed it did. When Miriam wrote her story, memory foam was already 20% of mattress sales. Again, though, that was pre-Casper and the wave of other mattress upstarts like Purple, Lisa, Avocado, and many more. I did some field research. The foam texture is really unique. I mean, the salesman basically put his keys down on the bed and I laid on top of them. And at first I felt the keys in my back. And then within like seconds, the keys sort of like were sucked into the memory foam. And so was I, basically. And, you know, you could see the appeal. While the foam material was novel, Miriam's experience showed how traditional retailers were still using old tricks to sell their mattresses. And not everyone was a fan of the hard sell. One aspect of the mattress sales process that was really not desirable and remains not desirable if you go into a mattress retailer is that it's sort of like buying a car. There's not a fixed price. It's always about haggling. It's always about negotiating. And like the real price is not the price that's on the mattress. And that made a lot of consumers really uncomfortable. It really annoyed people. And people wanted to kind of get away from that experience. And so I think that is really where companies like Casper saw an opening. And when it came to delivery, Casper was thinking outside of the box, which in this case actually meant thinking about the box. Here's Randy Connick again. They found a solution to you know, the delivery method of the product, which is you know, delivering it in a box that was unheard of. It was far more than the box, though. As a direct-to-consumer business, Casper needed other ways to recruit customers. They weren't just walking into a store. In this case, it meant word of mouth, sophisticated online targeting, and of course, podcast advertising. They pioneered the direct selling method, I really believe, and they did a great job of marketing to get brand awareness such that today, I believe a lot of other brands that sell everything from sneakers to apparel to you know, anything consumer discretionary, really, you know, Casper is a good gold standard, if you will. Eventually, Casper decided to take its gold standard to the public market. I remember when the company's S1 filing arrived. For some reason, I was particularly drawn to how a mattress company was selling itself to investors. There were lots of photos of people in bed, and not the kind of photos we'd seen in old mattress ads. These were young folks sprawled out in a bed with partners, kids, and dogs. This was the millennial-friendly mattress company, after all. There were also those big numbers around total addressable market, company's favorite way to describe their future opportunity, as we talked about in the Beyond Meat episode. In the case of Casper, it was all about the global sleep economy, which the company pegged at $432 billion. I always thought the valuable number for sleep was eight, as in eight hours. But for Casper's bankers, time was money. 
even when you were sleeping. For some people, it was a compelling pitch, particularly in a world where sleep was an increasingly important part of wellness. Here's Randy Connick again. I truly still believe that there is a case to be made that one should be thinking about the broader sleep economy. The one thing that has changed with consumers is they do care more about their sleep and how they sleep. For example, I personally wear a whoop band that measures my level of sleep or how much I slept and woke up during that sleep. And and I care about it, right? I look at it every morning to see that quality of sleep and does it match how I feel. So the one thing that does really actually make a lot of sense and, and rang true is that there is a change going on on how the consumer is looking at sleep as opposed to the past where people just saw it as, I just got to get, I got to go to sleep. It's just, it's an unproductive part of my day. I think now the conversation is starting to change where people see sleep as a, you know, improving their overall health and wellness. So how does the company come up with that total addressable market of $432 billion? Well, they're taking a rather expansive view of sleep, including the hour before you go to bed and the 30 minutes after you wake up. In Casper's view, the sleep economy includes everything we spend on mattresses, pillows, bedding, lights, furniture, sound and scent devices, sleep tracking devices, medical devices, bedside clocks, supplements, digital apps, meditation, and counseling. It's a list so long you can almost fall asleep. And yet, if any of those products help, even by adding five minutes of sleep, someone is likely to pay up. The question is how much money can Casper actually make on it all? Here's Miriam again. Well, I think that sleep is a pillar of wellness. I mean, I think we'll all agree that, you know, we need to be sleeping well in order to be healthy and happy. But how new is that? We've known ever since I wrote this story back in 2012 that Americans were looking for solutions for their inability to sleep. The question is whether investors think that there's still a lot of untapped potential in that market and a lot more dollars flowing into it or whether it's as big as it's going to get. It may be that we've already put as much money into sleep as we possibly can. I mean, there's a lot of competition out there. There's constant innovation in the mattress category and who knows what the next thing will be. I mean, even after memory foam was invented, a lot of people said, oh, it's too hot. And then there were all these cooling technologies. But how much more can you charge for that? How much is any innovation at this point going to help you win market share? I don't know. You know, and how much is the market continuing to grow or is it just a fight for the existing market? By the time Casper was ready to go public, no one was arguing with its impact as an innovative retailer. The problem was the company wasn't actually making any money yet. And in January 2020, IPO investors wanted to see actual earnings or a clear way of getting there. Casper told its investors, We have a history of losses and expect to have operating losses and negative cash flow as we continue to expand our business. It's not uncommon for companies to forecast years of losses in their IPO filings. But in January 2020, Casper's warning hit hard. The company ultimately priced its IPO well below expectations, giving it a value around $500 million. That was roughly half of what private market investors had valued Casper at less than a year earlier. The stock gained a bit on its first day of trading, 
but that was only after the company had taken a big haircut on its valuation. When it first told investors about going public, Casper put out a price range of $17 to $19 a share. After a few weeks of meeting with potential investors, the company's bankers had second thoughts. Ultimately, the IPO came at just $12 a share. It was a clear example of investors' new demand for profits. And if they weren't there, the IPO would have to be priced accordingly. Here's Randy Connick again. It was all about the unicorns, right? The market was all gaga over the idea of a unicorn. And any company that was distorting or disrupting a traditional product market. However, the stock market found over time that valuations were getting a bit hard to justify for companies that were disrupting categories, but not making money. So there was this move in time where the market was like, wait a second, you know, let's, let's, let's push on the brakes here. We need to see profits. There was also still a question of what Casper was a tech company that happened to sell mattresses or a mattress company that happened to use tech. The first one was likely to get a better reception in the IPO market and in the years to come. For now, investors were still trying to decide where Casper fell. Look, I think the one thing that has changed about the IPO market is that, if you recall, before Casper went public, there was a mania around technology for the stock market and in terms of IPOs. And with that mania, there was a view that growth was the most important metric in companies, not profits. So, you know, when you look at Casper pre-IPO, the revenue of the business was growing fairly dramatically, but the profitability was lacking. When the company went public, that was when the market was starting to turn. And what the market was demanding, if you will, is the market was demanding profitability. And at the time of the IPO, uh, Casper was not yet profitable and is still not profitable to this day, although they are on a path towards profitability by the end of 2021. Most home goods businesses have actually done quite well during the pandemic, as quarantine Americans focus their spending on their immediate surroundings. But Casper's stock didn't actually benefit all that much. As many stocks reach new highs, Casper's shares have basically gone sideways. One issue is the company is still losing a substantial amount of money. It's also been caught up in a bit of a nightmare, a shortage of foam. And Casper, the memory foam company, uses a lot of it. Founder and CEO Philip Krim recently called foam availability and pricing Casper's biggest risk. Though he says the company is positioned to absorb the issue. No pun intended, we don't think. This gets back to the question of what Casper is. Tech companies don't usually have to worry about foam or other physical materials. One more risk is that mattresses are as competitive as ever. And memory foam is no longer as exciting as it was back in 2012 when Miriam Gottfried wrote her story for Barron's. Well, I think the thing that Casper investors have to be looking out for is who are the other competitors who are also making beds in a box, who are also maybe undercutting them, who are maybe creating more innovative products or providing better customer service. So I think what Casper showed is there are very few barriers to entry in terms of making a mattress. And what others may already be showing is that that continues to be true. 
Randy says that Casper is responding to many of its challenges, with new products gaining momentum and real profits now on the horizon. The good news is the company has been really doing a good job of right-sizing the expense base, you know, getting better return on their marketing budget. And then they've got rid of their international operations to kind of focus on a, a very large market in the United States, you know, improve that focus, but also, you know, lower the cost structure. So it's this, this move towards profitability that is really the most important part of the story today. In the end, Casper's success might require investors to ask a different question about its business. Not whether it's a tech company, but whether it can continue to disrupt the retail business, even as it embraces more traditional forms of shopping. Casper opened its first store in 2017 and now has about 70 of them. Those stores, many of which are in malls, were hard hit during the pandemic, but the company is confident they'll bounce back with a vaccine. It still sees the potential for hundreds of stores. Targeted stores placed in the right locations can help complement your brand message and help reduce consumer friction. People want to be able to kind of touch the product at points in time. So, you know, the key message to me is the consumer wants to shop in both places. Yes, they're moving more of it online, but the stores are still going to matter. And having a few select targeted stores is the smart approach. And these younger companies can put those stores in the best locations and have better rent economics or better store economics than their legacy predecessors that have been selling these types of products for decades. It turns out that a bed in a box can't fully replace that need to try a bed in a store. Just spare us the hard sell. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadbackatbarons.com. Thanks to Randy Connick and Miriam Gottfried. For more coverage on Casper, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzhoff and Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Next week on the show, how Alibaba became the world's biggest and probably its most complicated IPO. I actually laughed out loud when I read the numbers because they were so big. You know what stands out to most is that nobody paid any attention to the risk factors. There was such unbelievable excitement about being able to invest that you would talk over some of the risks with clients and they just didn't care. We'll be back next week.